Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, helping homeowners across the Northeast to lower their carbon footprints with geothermal heating and cooling systems. More information at dandelionenergy.com. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan joining us online to go over the latest headlines about food policy. The industry and the way we eat is food uh, writer Corby Cummer. Corby is the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Hello, Corby Cummer. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. Hello, Hello. Corby Cummer. So let's start with this great story about what people claim about their foods when you see the the markings on or the writing on these labels and what is actually going on. That apparently no antibiotics, you mainly raise, environmentally responsible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is not necessarily true on these labels. Tell us about this, Corby. Well, you know, where Jim says healthy, there are a number of terms that have no official definition, which means it's a free-for-all, everybody can use them, and everybody does use them. One of them is healthy, another is all-natural, and another is sustainable. So these are buzzwords of the present but they have no actual meaning or definition. Nobody can enforce it. And therefore, everybody can put it on their label. It's sustainably raised. It's family farms. Family farms does have a kind of definition, but it's so loose that almost every farm in the country, no matter how small or big, uh, meets family farm as a definition. The worst, though, is natural uh, and sustainable. And so people are putting them on the label. And Legal advocacy groups are starting to use their muscle with challenges to this. So the idea that natural needs a definition from USDA and FDA, long overdue, long necessary, but legal groups are saying, we're going to start suing you for fraud in your labels and for mislabeling. It's been used in the past successfully, but it's really taking up steam, legal challenges to big food companies. You know, Corby, can you step back a second? You mentioned a couple, excuse me, federal agencies. Is there one agency that has jurisdiction over these kinds of issues? If I'm there is so just... glad you asked. Well, no. And... Oh, is that part of, the... I assume that's part of the problem. Huge problem. Okay. So there's the United States Department of Agriculture with label descriptions for meat and egg products. There's the FDA, um, which regulates uh, a lot of food products, but not ones that involve any kind of fresh processing. And there's the Federal Trade Commission, which is supposed to make definitions of different terms as well. So everything, not everything, but so many things fall between cracks that when you say antibiotic-free, for example, that's got to be FDA uh, that's enforcing this. Animal welfare, that's mostly USDA, but some of it is also USDA and FDA. It's this welter. That's why one general food inspection service or nutrition agency is the call of many people, including my trademark mention of the Tufts Friedman Dean uh, Mosafarian, our very, our very good friend, Dari. But this is a long-standing need. Marion Nessel and food politics 
we have to have one overseeing body because as long as there are all these loopholes and all these different agencies with all overlapping but not clear lines of authority, we're going to have this uh, vagueness. But you had a good experience, didn't you, at Whole Foods? I, I, I did. Well, I think a lot of people shop at uh, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's because they do advertise as having you know, a lot of organic food and natural food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yesterday, I went into Whole Foods to buy when my kids was coming home, his favorite kind of uh, 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 turkey from there, and it was gone. I said to the guy, "What happened?" And he said, "Well, they got rid of it because of a uh, of investigation uh, with some animal uh, cruelty stuff." Are you not saying the name because you're not sure? Well, if because he's right? well, because there were several different names. Okay, I don't want to get the okay, name fine. the name okay. wrong. But I went online this morning and looked at a PETA investigation, apparently, of how the turkeys were treated at the supposedly humane, natural place, and it was gruesome, and that was linked to the turkey I couldn't get at Whole Foods, so at least they were paying some attention. But it it does make you think, if you were going to these stores to to get the cage-free eggs, to get the humanely raised, whatever it is, we don't really have any idea. Do they have any idea, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods? Uh, You know, I applaud you for caring about animal welfare, but as we've discussed and we will discuss again, with Whole Foods, that's their own system of animal welfare ratings. It isn't even done by the Animal Welfare Institute, which is a really good one, but there are competing designations for what is raised with animal welfare in mind. So I actually applaud Whole Foods. I didn't know that they've actually removed a product from the shelf because there have been problems that they've investigated. A big criticism of these kinds of advocacy organizations we've been talking about is that companies leave it to themselves to say, here's what we think is animal welfare. I think that cage-free has a definition, but free-range does not. And so there are all these terms that are constantly on labels, and they don't necessarily have trade organizations, let alone any kind of government uh, organization that is Defining them, the only term that you've mentioned so far that does is organic. So the Organic Trade Act, uh, which is, I think, almost 20 years uh, old by now, has had various redefinitions, but it's the only thing that's actually got government backing of what it means to put organic on the label. Animal welfare, sustainability, natural, completely a free-for-all talking to Corby Cummer. So, Corby, I never miss an opportunity. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I ask one last thing before we leave this? So, since so many people do go to those stores, I'm sure there are other ones as well that that advertise humane treatment of animals, what's a consumer supposed to do? Grass-fed is another one. You see that all the time about milk, you know, grass-fed milk or locally uh, raised milk, etc. Is there some repository of information that can help you know where to go? Or what to do? There are, you know, a number of these organizations like the Good Food Institute uh, are trying to post names of people that they approve of and that they disapprove of. But um, but right now it's all a question of who's bringing lawsuits against, for example, Sargento put antibiotic free on yeah, its cheese. And then there was a sting in which there were various products uh, of of uh, Sargento that did have antibiotics in it. This has come up a lot with non-GMO. Uh, it's almost impossible to plausibly claim that something is non-GMO because the supply chain doesn't have full transparency. I actually 
believe in genetic uh, engineering for products, but but that's a real welter of stuff. So Marjorie, I don't think there is an easy way of finding out, but you're, for example, making your consumer choices based on you trust that Whole Foods is going to have a lot of these um, priorities in mind. And Trader and Joe's. Just, and Trader Joe's and Wegmans, for example. Wegmans, yep. These are places in the Boston area that have kind of hung their hat on saying we care about our suppliers and and making this pact with our um, consumers. It's part of our brand identity. So that's kind of as good as it gets right yeah. now. It should be much better. We're talking to Corby Cummer. As I started to say, Corby, I, I never miss an opportunity to call use the term big as a pejorative <laughs> adjective, you know, big tobacco, big pharma. I love that. It just has an avis it just has a visceral great thing. But I read a story in Mother Jones about big almond, which I had not <laughs> heard before. And then I almost didn't read it because I figure I really don't want to hear about some almond abuser type or whatever until I read Can you the abuse damn almonds? Well, I mean or you uh, in the industry abuse. <laughs> and then I read the story about uh, how Biden has picked uh, a a big lobbyist from the almond industry to be the U.S. trade representative. And it really stinks, actually. I mean, it really... Marjorie, who is as climate-obsessed, which we should all be, as anybody I know, this story must have driven you right over the damn edge. Explain why there's yeah. a problem with big almond uh, being uh, the U.S. trade representative, Corby Cummer, what the conflict is, for lack well, of Well, first of all, there's been an endlessly historic conflict of interest with whoever an administration names as the U.S. trade representative. So there kind of are always industry ties. This year in the Biden administration, it is the Almond Board. In the past, it's been... Um, it's been other aspects of the food industry that have been represented by the trade organizations like the Cattlemen's Beef Association that uh, President Trump uh, gave it to. President George W. Bush to an Iowa soybean flack, then to a GMO seed executive. So, By the way, Obama be- did the same thing. It's a bipartisan fix right, kind right, of right. thing. And yeah. now Biden is doing it with yeah. an almond representative. So. You know, the argument for it is these are people who have ably uh, engaged in trade negotiations, including internationally. And in the case of, you know, for beef, for example, uh, for GMO and soybeans, enormous number of foreign exports, soybeans to China and Brazil, um, beef to to China and India, and all of them have like, been growing in their own markets. For almonds, the kind of stunning fact is that I think up to 70% of California almond production is exported. So it's a huge amount of this trade uh, that goes to Europe and China and is very important to price support for almonds. Why do we care and why are we angry about this in particular? Because there's no effective uh, limits on irrigation. Uh, controls and who shares water and who parcels out how much uh, water various agriculture industries within California are able to use. And what we talked about and will continue to talk about are water resources in California as related to almonds. 
So, you know, this is kind of a sign that the Biden administration wants to help out industries that rely enormously on foreign purchases to keep up their price supports, how they uh, manage U.S. trade pacts with different countries so that uh, the enormous amount of exports, in this case to almonds, can go. But until there's effective and concurrent regulation, you know, of methane for the Cattlemen's Beef Association, now for California water resources for the almond industry, it's not going to sit well with any kind of environmental activist like Marjorie Egan well, that uh, this is this is the trade rep. And now I have to stop eating almonds, I guess, is the other thing, too. <laughs> Well, as, as their t- market expands, they're they're expanding well beyond the yeah. water. How much? I just looked. Well, it they up. just talk about how the- much water do you need for one almond? How much know. water do you Eight know, Corby? Gallons. One, I think it's a gallon. One point one gallon of water for one damn almond. Well, they talk in the story about how in the San Joaquin Valley, the four million residents there are seeing their wells go dry. Not all of them, but some mm-hmm. of them are, as the nut farmers dig ever deeper wells to capture water from these aquifers. So, um, boy, you know, we're the supposed to be... of distribution, industry by industry, agriculture or product by agricultural product. That's what's most important. Um, you know, we can all be enormously upset about almond use and about methane uh, eruption. But again, it's a nuanced picture. There are different companies who uh, try to adhere to their own sustainability techniques while the industry itself is an enormous methane producer for cattle and water user in the case of the California almond industry. I bought a, I'm, I'm just looking at these numbers. I bought a pound of almonds I, like two nights ago. Yeah. 1,900 gallons of water for one pound of almonds. You know what just reminded me of, which I should have looked up before, it just but it just popped in my head. Remember that story that everybody thought was so fascinating about Obama eating seven almonds a day? Didn't that turn out to be BS that he was... Oh, it's a complete fabrication. He was BSing the reporter, wasn't he, from the New York <laughs> Times or something? I think he said he has precisely seven, um, he counts them Little out, container. seven almonds, I think it was, and then it wasn't true. I don't right? even think it was Obama himself. I think it was someone else who put that out about oh, him okay. as a sign of his iron will and discipline. Maybe it was. We're talking to Corby Comer. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, the food insecurity. There was a lot of money, uh, federal spending, and, and charitable giving during the pandemic, uh, which, on the one hand, helped all these food insecure households, but on the other hand, indicated how big the problem is, I think. So let's get back to what food insecure means. It means that a household within a given month is not sure that it will have access to or money enough to cover the needs of everybody in the household. So that's what food insecurity means. It means uncertainty about their own resources in the course of a month. So the surprising study from the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, was that levels of food insecurity overall and um, and people who responded that they felt they were food insecure didn't change all that much from 2020 over 2019. What did change was the enormous amount of government money available to help food insecurity and with food assistance and the number of sheer people using those increased government resources. For example, I think that we all saw 
or can remember that Feeding America last year during the pandemic said that one in seven people uh, in the United States of the population might have been food insecure in the country. And the reason the USDA isn't a, uh, saying that there was a huge spike in this is because so much government assistance helped out people who needed uh, money. But the big question is going to shake down in October and November. So in October, a lot of the pandemic reliefs are expiring, including the really important uh, pandemic EBT uh, for school children relief, which was giving families the option of using the same amount of money their child and in fact family could have had uh, for school lunches. They were able to put that into the purchase purchasing power on their SNAP benefits. Uh, that's expiring, but at the same time, uh, and October 1st, which I think is incredibly soon, the historic rise in SNAP and food assistance benefits that the Biden administration rammed through based on a bipartisan vote and order to Congress four years ago to recalculate what every household on food assistance needed in order to feed the household. That's happening supposedly on October 1, this historic increase in SNAP benefits. Will that be enough to make up for these um, expirations of pandemic food relief? We won't really know till October and November statistics come out, but it's worrisome. But there's one uh, one other uh, benefit uh, that also, unless Congress, or I think this is bipartisan, I can't, well, actually, no, it's in the $3.5 trillion, isn't it? The, the making permanent, or at least expanding for, extending for five years the child tax credit, oh, yeah. which obviously is a huge plus for people feeding their kids, and they've they've shown that a huge percentage of that money is going to literally feeding your family, so let's hope Congress is... Uh, That's huge. And one other aspect of this unexpectedly sort of sunny sounding USDA report was that racial disparities were more sharply emphasized by the pandemic. The theory is that it's mostly because Black and Latino Americans were likelier to hold jobs in the hotel sector and the restaurant sector. So they immediately saw their income and food security levels drop. Whether those racial disparities continue to be so prominent and highlighted into food insecurity reports is something that we all have to look at. And luckily, the Biden administration is prioritizing. You know, it's not my business, but I'll make it my business anyway. Food uh, uh, and nutrition advocates, you amongst them, all the great people who work at, we interview, many of them. We need a better term, I think, than food insecurity. I, I don't think that has the visceral connection. When I read a story, I mean, I like to think I'm a compassionate person. And when I read about these food insecurity numbers, it's really painful. But it's more of an intellectual connection. When I read a story about what food insecurity really means to a kid. Fearing hunger. It is so incredibly painful. It is just, it's unbelievable. And and since everything is branding in this society, I for one think you got to get to work over at the Friedman whatever, whatever, and come up with a better term. Can you do that? First of all, I couldn't agree more. I remember um, seeing a prep for a funder going to an international food insecurity meeting. And she always, uh, she's a very active funder, and she always asks the simple but devastating question. She said, what do people mean when they say food insecurity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so her her staff, her small staff, because she's very lean, 
had to assemble every working definition of food insecurity. And now, just to move the goalposts, Jim, the Friedman School and other advocacy is going to be for nutrition insecurity to give the idea that it's not just the amount of food, it's whether that is nutritious food that's going to help improve people's health. Better, but not quite there. I think it okay. is better. So can we go, Comer, let's the, get to yeah, your story. Okay. Clearly the big story <laughs> of the day is the, is the dilemma, the tragic tale about the ketchup package shortage that apparently is impacting the entire nation. But Heinz has come to the rescue. So first, why... Are we running out of ketchup packets? Question. And what really is question. Heinz courageously doing about it? Yeah, I'm so glad that we're promoting Heinz on this show. We are, yes, For we are. charging everybody who wants its new <laughs> packet roller $5.70 because 57 varieties. It's something we all, more brand That's identity right. for Heinz, <laughs> including our promoting it on this show. So... Everybody, when I say everybody, pretty much all restaurants had to increase their use of mini packets during the pandemic for so-called sanitation rules that turned out to be mostly oh, inapplicable exactly. to the protection. Um, so we didn't have to worry about this absurd hygiene theater and ridiculous number of people at fast food outlets who would show you their bag, their hub of food cleaning products when you came through the door to show that your menu and your sin and your salt and pepper shakers were going to be sanitized you know that's good but it's not going to help with covid um and so with something like 4.2 billion uh packets that heinz was manufacturing uh last year during the pandemic what's most staggering about this is when you think about the amount of waste that goes to this, not just to your beloved ketchup margarine, but to all of the plastic and metal packets, which I don't think are particularly recyclable, um, go, going into these absurd numbers of packets. But so what Heinz has done is get this roller that fits on your keychain <laughs> and you slip the packet into it and you squeeze it with a key and you get every little drop of goodness from the you can name the brand of ketchup that was in that packet. And by the way, it is shaped like a Heinz ketchup bottle. So it's <laughs> a two right. for. But can I tell you something? You know what? Marjorie, I knew when I came in this morning, was going to be like over the moon about this. And she was. Do you, do, don't you have one of those 99 cents toothpaste squeezer things where you put the bottom of your toothpaste container in the exact same thing that isn't Heinz and as about, and, and to keep it moving up to the I, top? I don't have the toothpaste. I don't have the I and just do my hands. how about access to a butter knife That's and a, a flat surface? That's a <laughs> Although I, you know, I I don't really like I don't really like ketchup, but I have spent many oh, many a, a meal trying to wrestle every drop out of the the mayonnaise thing. I'm a big fan of of mayonnaise, and it's really the same problem. I don't know that there's been a mayonnaise packet shortage all across America, but I would be distressed if I couldn't get the mayonnaise out. And I have to get your climate change alert up because I said four billion. It was twelve billion packets I knew this it year low. alone. Oh. That they were distributing. So you, you have to hate that and hope that every restaurant will go back to the squeeze push distributors 
that everybody uses and can wipe off with a napkin or do through a napkin, but much less waste. Well, have you noticed how, how uh, when you go out now for dinner, that there's almost never a salt and pepper shaker on the table? I hate that. Right? I hate that. And it, what I did Joe it. Allen from Harvard School of Public Health tell us about contact? Not one single there's not one case, case of COVID shown to be through touching things. I so admire Joe Allen and his environmental work and air purification and need, which has been great for our safety yep. first, my prerequisite Aspen oh. Institute safety first mention. So that kind of work that Joe Allen has been doing uh, at Harvard and that as a national advocate, that's what's really important for COVID safety, not your um, ketchup packet. Can I say one last thing about ketchup? <laughs> and then we got we to gotta move on here. You know, every once in a while I read a story about how much, because I'm always worried about my weight, how much sugar is in everything from bread to whatever. There's a ton of sugar in ketchup. Yeah. Is there a ketchup that, I don't mean a brand necessarily, well, maybe I do, but is there a ketchup that tastes good, that that serves the purpose of ketchup, if you like it, which I do. I don't love it, but I like it, that is not sugar-intensive, Corby Cummer, do you know? So there's an enormous problem with that question. There are many alternative and better and less artificial ingredient-sounding alternatives to ketchup. But you like that Heinz flavor profile. It is what you are used to, and it involves lots of sugar. You're right. So what would be the way around getting around the sugar? Because it's immensely high, the sugar amount. And the secret ingredient we all know is clove. That's part of that flavor profile that you love. It's clove. Uh, That's one of the great gimmicks. How good are you at tasting and figuring out the clove is in ketchup? Mm. So you would probably not like the artificial sweetener that was in it, oh. but you associate ketchup with that amount of sweetness. Yeah. And so a more healthful alternative that's back to the original um, catsup, which was mushroom. It's an early American recipe that was for mushrooms, not tomatoes. Um, anyway, it wouldn't make you happy, Jim. Okay, but one last thing. I said that was last thing, but you just touched on a question that I've wanted to ask you for the years that I've known you, and I've forgotten What's the difference between catsup and ketchup? Uh, As far as I know, catsup was the original. It's all a transliteration of, I think, a Sanskrit word. I don't think it's Chinese. So it was how different people wrote it in English, transliterated. Um, But I'm going to have to look up whether it was Chinese or Sanskrit. But it's different ways of... uh, Re, re, retranslating this transliteration. You know, I Next don't know we're, why we're you're asking Corby so many questions because later in the show, Corby, we're going to be joined by Ryan Landry, who is, who is a European canned tomato influencer. Influencer, he is. And, and we're hoping to ask him all these questions. We can, we can get into that with Ryan, I think. But we'll, we have we'll, a wide range of experts on this show. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> we we're return, we'll return to the catsup issue next week. Corby, who, it's great to see you. Who doesn't want to be a canned tomato influencer? Exactly. That's all I have to say. Thank Corby you. Cummer, thank you Bye, very Corby. much for joining us. Corby Cummer joins us regularly. Corby wrote a book on coffee, too. He did. Of he did write it. That's right. Lives. He's the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Thanks again, Corby Cummer. Up next, the Boston Globe's Shirley Leung is here to talk about the role of big money, and it was big money, what it played in the Boston's mayoral race. Uh, Shirley Young is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.